I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning, Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And if you're particularly dexterous, you might even have an extra finger planted in a passage that I would like to look at a little bit on later on in the sermon, Romans 12, 1 through 2. Both of those are printed for you in your bulletin. And of course, this is part of our ongoing series where we're looking at the vision of our church. What is it that we want to be? Who is it that we want to be? And as what, as you know, every week we're taking different biblical texts that unfolds one of the values of that vision. And that vision, by now you pretty much have it, I'm sure, memorized. Our desire as a church is to transform the town of Flower Mound with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that brings about personal transformation community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal, not just in our suburbs, but throughout the Metroplex and even throughout the world. And last week, we began looking at the last of those major themes, the idea of cultural renewal. And we began doing that by looking at the cultural mandate, so-called cultural mandate. We find it in Genesis 1.28. And you remember that what God is calling us to do is to have dominion over the whole of the creation. This is a creation ordinance. God created us, and even before the fall, he calls us to have dominion over the whole creation. In other words, we as human beings are not just simply to live in the world, but we are to shape the world. And as we saw, we are to shape the world in accord to the image with which we were created. We were created in the image of God, so we are to shape the world in righteousness and holiness and knowledge and so on. But we also saw that last week that because sin has now marred our world, entered into our world, and and damaged our world, we're now engaged not just in having dominion over the creation, but having to renew the creation as well. And before we move into today's reading, I do want to remind you of something else that we learned last week, which was a definition of the word culture. When we talk about renewing the culture, what do we mean by the word culture? And we said it means much more than just highbrow art and literature and music, but that culture is everything, everything that we do voluntarily, everything that proceeds from freedom, everything that proceeds from our free will, everything that we do freely. So if you think about that then... Culture is everything, everything that people say, everything that people do, everything that people think, everything that people have, everything that people make. All these things make up culture, and when we put them together, they form a way of life. So think about it, a product like Starbucks, a TV show like American Idol, a social activity like blogging, a classic rock song like Stairway to Heaven, all these things communicate something about our values, something about our concerns, something about what's important to us. They communicate our self-understanding, how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. And so in reality, culture, being everything that we do and make and think and have and, 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 and say, ultimately is the living out of our values. It is a lived out Worldview. That's a very important, we have to have that definition in place so that we can understand the culture. If we're going to have dominion over the creation, and if we are going to shape the culture around us, we have to know what it is that we're talking about. But that's what we did last week. Today we have a very important question that's a follow-on. How can we shape the culture if we cannot read the culture? If we can't tell what's happening in the culture... 
And if we cannot read the culture, how can we discern how the culture is shaping us and affecting us? So today we want to focus on the ability to be able to read the culture. And for that, we turn to Jesus and what he had to say in Matthew 16. We'll look at the first four verses. Hear now the word of our Lord. And the Pharisees and Sadducees Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. Well, thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless into our hearing, especially as it's preached to us this morning. So as we look at this text, we're going to take the same general pattern that we took last week as we look at it and as we study the mandate therein. We're going to look at the mandate, the magnitude, the motivation, and the method. What is the mandate for reading the culture? What is the extent of it, the magnitude? What is our motivation for reading the culture? And finally, what is the method by which we do that? So let's begin with the mandate. What is the mandate for reading the culture? And we see it here in this passage from Matthew 16, 1 through 4. It's a passage that highlights how important it is for us to be able to read what the world is doing, and more importantly, even what God is doing in the midst of our world. You see in verse 1 how the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus. They weren't looking for answers. They were, in fact, seeking to trap him, to incriminate him, right? We read the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, to test him, they asked asked him to show them a sign from heaven. They're asking for a spiritual sign, for a sign of religious significance, you know, make somebody rise from the dead or fire come down from heaven or something. They're asking for something to prove his claims to be the Messiah. And you see Jesus' answer in verses 2 through 3. He says, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. And then he chastises them for their failure to be able to interpret the signs of the times. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. He's telling them, here I am. I've been doing signs in your midst the entire time. These signs point to my ministry. These signs point to the fact that I am the Messiah. These signs point to the coming of the kingdom of God that has come with my presence. And you can't see them. He chastises them for their failure to properly interpret the signs of their times and to comprehend that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. What he's talking about, of course, is he's uh, uh, chastising them for lacking spiritual discernment. Their inability to discern And what is it that we're to discern? Well, we can look at the way it is even for us today. There are natural signs of which he speaks. In this case, he uses an example of weather. But there are cultural signs, the signs of our times, the things that we are doing. And then, of course, there are theological signs. Those signs, as we see here, Jesus himself did, that were signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. And these Jewish leaders were unable to see what God was doing through Jesus. They lacked that spiritual discernment. Well, we're in the exact same situation today. We have to be spiritually awake 
to what is going on in the world around us. We can't just go blithely on in our world. We have to be able to do two things. We have to be able to see what the world is doing. In other words, to put it in sort of biblical language, we have to be able to discern the spirit of the age. What is the culture? Remember, the culture is everything that we do. What is the culture doing? The culture should be, as we have dominion of the, of, over creation, should be in line with what God is doing. But ever since the fall, that's no longer the case. The culture that we are creating is now antithetical to what God intended us to do. We were to shape the world in God's image, right, in likeness in which we were created, but instead we're moving away from that. We have to be able to discern those patterns in our world to see how the culture is reflecting the spirit of the age and not being a part of the kingdom of God. But we also have to be able to discern the presence and the work of God in our midst as he works through Christ, through his spirit. We have to be able to see that redemptive work that God is doing in our times. Let me give you a perfect example. It's just happening right now. I didn't even write these names down because I just read about them yesterday, but they're good examples. Right now, there is a pastor in the UK who was dismissed from his post in the Church of England for preaching a sermon on biblical sexuality and the biblical view of marriage which meant that he went against the view of sexuality that our culture today teaches, especially in regards to homosexuality and all this other stuff. He's not only been dismissed, but he has been charged. He was referred to the counterterrorism unit there in the UK, and he has been charged as a terrorist. Now, you have to be able to read how the culture has been working up to this. 20 years ago, what happened? 9-11. And 9-11 banged on the drum again and again, terrorism, terrorism, be afraid of terrorism, terrorism is around every corner, to the point that if you're 20 years or younger, you think it's perfectly normal for the government to be able to fondle you anytime you travel. Because that's the world in which you grew up. We have allowed that to happen. And once we allowed the government to do that, it was no big leap to then say, Disease, disease, run for the hills, run for the hills, everybody hide. And not that the disease was not real, not that it did not have and continues to have ravaging effects and that we need to be careful and need to do all sorts of things, but it became a cover for taking more and more control of people so that now in Canada and in the UK and in California and other places, you have churches being shut down because they're trying to have worship. You have to be able to see that these things are not neutral, the signs of our times, the culture is using those things in order to ultimately... You think the evil one is just sitting back and letting these things happen? They are things that are happening using terrorism, pandemic, in order to sh- try to shut down the church. But we also have to be able to see the second thing, which is God at work in our time. And God is basically saying, I'm tired of baby boomer worship and spiritual entertainment. It's time to refine the church. So he uses... Remember what Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And he's using this as the social and cultural cost of Christianity rises. The churches will be purged of easy believism and will come back to, are you going to follow Jesus? Are you willing to take up your cross and die? If not literally, which perhaps may be around the horizon, but ultimately die to self. We have to have that ability to be able to discern, to read what's happening in the culture, what the world is doing, 
and what God is doing in our midst. So that's the mandate that's before us that Jesus is laying out here in the first four verses of Matthew 16. But now let's take a look at the magnitude. How broad is this call to be able to discern and read the culture? In order for us to fully understand the magnitude of what it means to read the culture, let's examine what exactly it is that culture does to us. And here I want to turn back to a book that I mentioned last week called Everyday Theology by Kevin Van Hooser because he has a very insightful summary of what culture does. He points out in his little book that culture communicates, orients, reproduces, and cultivates. Culture communicates, culture orients, culture reproduces, and culture cultivates. Let's take a look at the first of those, the fact that culture communicates. Culture is constantly around us communicating to us in obvious and less than obvious ways. It does it sometimes overtly in your face. Sometimes it does it insidiously and covertly. But it's always communicating through all sorts of means, through movies and music, through magazines, through advertisements, through school assemblies, through everything. If you ever work for Disney, you know that in Disney, everyone is a cast member, right? doesn't matter whether you are playing the Princess Moana or whether you are a janitor, you are a cast member. And they do that because the idea is that everything is a performance. So when you become uh, an employee of Disney, a cast member, you have to go to their Disney University. We used to live five minutes outside of that, and we got to talk to all the people who went through it. On day one, at least back in the 90s, they probably do this all online or who knows how now, but you'd go to the class and they'd give you a big old binder and when you open it, page one, in huge letters, everything speaks. That's lesson one. Everything speaks. Nothing is neutral. Everything in the park tells you something about our values and our desires for you as you walk into Disney World or Disneyland or whatever. So that little piece of gum, that wad of gum on the floor, it speaks and it says This is a dirty place. So that's why the janitor is a cast member. He's putting on the performance that this is a place where there's no garbage. And so it gets cleaned up right away. Everything speaks. And it's actually true because it speaks to our culture. Everything in our culture is speaking. Nothing is neutral. All of them are sending cultural messages. There's a a vision that's being put forward regarding the meaning of life by everything that you come across, everything that humans say, everything that humans do, everything that humans think, everything that humans make, everything that humans have is communicating. And when you take them all together and put them together, they give us a holistic vision for life. It communicates a program for making sense of the world around us. Call it an interpretive framework through which you can understand the world and read your own life and make sense of your life. And if culture is able to do that, communicate, then it means it can also, number two, orient. Culture orients because in providing a framework for everyday life, culture then directs us and orients us into a particular world. It orients us cognitively, emotionally, morally. It gives us a sense of direction. What is our values? What is right? We see that happening all through the culture today. As people think about how should we think about sexuality and what's permissible or how we treat people and so on and so on. Think of the explosion of, for example, uh, transgender uh, culture. 
Think of the Me Too movement and how all those things shape you and force people to think and act in certain ways. You see, in the past, this is one of the things that we have to be aware of, people received their basic orientation for life from their families, from schools, and from the church. But that has become much, much less so because all three of those institutions have been greatly weakened. And you might say, wait, the school hasn't been weakened. Well, the school as an extension of the family has. The school now as an arm of the state has been strengthened. But as an extension of the family has been greatly weakened. In his book, Media Culture, Douglas Kellner says this. He says, in today's media culture, images and celebrities are replacing families, schools, and churches as the arbiters of taste, value, and thought. That's exactly what's happening. They give us that basic orientation now for life. Our basic thought patterns, our values, our tastes, all those things are being shaped by the culture. Now, contrast that to what we learned last week in the cultural mandate where we're the ones who are to shape the world, and the reality is that we are now being shaped by the world. So culture does not only communicate, but it also orients. It lines you up with a particular way of living. And it goes more than that. It also reproduces. Culture reproduces itself. Culture spreads beliefs and values and ideas and fashions and practices from one social group to the other. We all see that. That's why, for example, in the world in which I grew up, the world of the urban poor, we began to see, as I was long gone from that world by the time it happened, but in the world of the urban poor, young black men were pulling their pants down beneath their buttocks. You remember that from the 90s? And when I arrived in Flower Mound in 2005, upper middle class, wealthy, white Flower Mound, the kids in the school across the street were doing the same thing. Culture communicates, and it spreads. Something we have to recognize. It spreads from person to person by observation and by social learning, either face-to-face, something they actually see, or through all the different forms of media communication that we have now, like writing and television and the Internet. So it spreads. It's communicated. It's transmitted horizontally. That's when we copy cultural traits from those around us, like the example I just gave. It's also communicated and transmitted vertically from parents to children. When we set the examples for our children, when we teach them, when we give them advice. But whether it's happening horizontally, whether it's happening vertically, the, fo- the, po- the, fo- the point is that culture communicates itself and re- I'm sorry, reproduces itself. It doesn't stay in any one spot. Those values, those visions, those beliefs... Those fashions, they they continue on. They propagate. And because of that, we have to recognize that ultimately culture cultivates. Cultivates. Because it orients us and lines us up in a particular direction and reproduces itself, it begins to form the spirit of our heart. Don't you see? This is the key thing that we as Christians must recognize, that the culture is always involved in our spiritual formation. Our engagement with culture always is part of the process of forming who we are spiritually. It cultivates our character. It cultivates the habits of our heart. And that means that it forms our spirit in such a way that we become this kind of person as opposed to that kind of person. It has that power. 
And until we recognize that, we're going to be susceptible to having it do that work. And it will do its work whether we recognize it or not. And that's one of the things that we have to recognize is that spiritual formation is happening all the time. It's happening in our lives. It's happening in the lives of our children. Take, for example, television. It's one of the most powerful spirit-forming cultural implements. You say, well, nobody watches television anymore. Well, maybe not the big old set that sat on the floor with the rabbit ears and, you know, you have to turn the dial. But we all carry televisions in our pocket, right? Watching a screen and there's a show and there's a... We all do. And, and, and the words of Nicholas Johnson, who was uh, in the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, in 1971, Nicholas Johnson said... All television is educational television. The question merely is, what is it teaching? And that's exactly true. Not just for television, but for all the different things. They're cultivating, they're teaching, they're forming a worldview. In his book called Eyes Wide Open, William Romanowski writes, It is the cumulative effect of viewing the world portrayed in the popular arts that has the power to persuade over time and with the influence of many, many films, TV shows, and CDs. And today we can throw on the Internet. It's the idea, as he says, over time. It's like putting on layers of varnish. You don't do it all in one shot, but one layer and another layer and another. And before you know it, you've got something built up. And then Kevin Van Hooser in the book that we already mentioned, Everyday Theology, says, Culture is always cultivating our spirits in one way or another sensitizing or desensitizing us, and enlivening or dulling our capacity to attend to various aspects of reality. It's either drawing us closer to Christ, pushing us away from Christ. It's either either softening us to the truth of the gospel or hardening us to the truth of the gospel. But like it says, it's always shaping and moving us in order to be able to handle, he calls it attending various aspects of reality, being able to handle the real world. And this is one of the most important things to recognize about culture. Is there a real world? Is there really a world the way it is? I often tell my boys, you can't live in the world the way you want it to be. You have to interact with it the way it is. There are worlds right now that are being created all around for us. I'm not talking about The Matrix. Remember that movie from the late 90s where the people lived in a virtual reality that had been created for them? We have other movies like that, Shutter Island and Inception, and they're all a lot of fun uh, you know, movies to watch. But the question is, and this is a very postmodern thing, postmodernism teaches that there is no actual reality. It's whatever you make it yourself. You can create your own world. You get to define your values and your beliefs as if it doesn't matter. The question we have to ask is, in the world in which you are living right now, are the things that you do, are the things that you value, are the things that you believe correct? And are they real? And by what standard do we measure them to be that? You see, culture, as we've already said, is a lens. That's what we saw last week. It's a lens through which we can see, we can get a vision of our lives, a vision of the whole social order. It's the social order expressed. It's the social order experienced. Right? That's the lived-out worldview that we talked about last week. And as we've said before, everybody lives out their worldview. You have a worldview and you live it out whether you're conscious of it or not. The point is that where does that worldview come from? And increasingly in our the day and age, we, our children and ourselves, are living in worlds that have been projected out for us. 
created for us by television and movies and comic books and video games and the Internet. Tolkien would have loved it. He called that sub-creation, but he recognized that he was writing fiction. A lot of the worlds that have been created for us aren't so. We don't recognize that. What's one of the most obvious ones today? When a person whom you can medically examine and say, this is the person's sex, and I refuse to call it gender. They want you to call it gender because gender is something that is a grammatical term and which is assigned sex you were born with. When a person who you can see has a particular sex and that person claims to be the opposite sex, and they believe that that's possible, that is a created world. It's false. It doesn't work. And we're increasingly seeing the effects of it. But in our culture today, that world is being projected and many people have stepped into it. And see, this is the important thing to recognize. Those worlds are projected. The products of our culture, Lady Gaga, Google, Desperate Housewives, those are all products of our culture. And they all work together to project a world of meaning that invites us into that world, encourages us to make our home in their world. And it's attractive to us because they unfold with all their values, a possible way of living, a possible way for us to be human. These are culturally created worlds. And they're accompanied by the whispers of their creators that say, come in, behold, it is very good. Does that sound similar to something you've heard? They lure us in with that promise as they mimic what God himself said. So the big question is, When those worlds are projected in front of us, should we accept their invitation to appropriate what they are putting before us so that we can enter in and pitch our tents in that world? Now, some Christians say yes, because if we're to be missionaries, Christians are called in Christian mission to go out into the world and to preach the gospel, so we have to enter into their worlds. But yes, that does not mean that we have to enter and become and live within their worlds. We just have to understand and to be able to read what they think the world is. And then go to them. Remember, Jesus said in John 17, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So those Christians who think that you have to, and Paul dealt with this in the Corinth, we have to taste all these things of sin in order to be able to understand it. So I have to live an immoral life and live with my girlfriend or go do this and do that in order to understand the world in which I No, no, you're in the world. You understand it. They think that's okay, but you're not to be of the world. And that's the real danger that exists right now. Maybe on things like sexual morality, perhaps we're a little clearer in the church, maybe not as clear as we should be. In fact, I think we could probably say that's not the case. But in so many other ways, we have to recognize that we, and our children especially, are in danger of living in these cleverly devised mythical worlds that have been created by marketing, that have been created by the media, and which are shaping the world that they think and the way that they act. So many Christians today have learned their theology in this way. They've learned it in the streets. When we were kids, we used to say, you know, where did you learn about sex? You learned about it on the streets, as opposed to at home or where, you know, and so on. But so many Christians today are learning their theology in the streets, at the mall, on the Internet, all these different worlds that have been put out there. That's why it's important that we read the culture. And that leads us to my third point, motivation. Why should you read the culture? This danger that you might be sucked into another world. There are three reasons why. 
When we talk about being able to read something, we say a person is literate. So as we talk about being able to read the culture, we talk about being culturally literate. And there's three reasons why you should be culturally literate. The first one is so that you know what is out there in the world trying to form our spirit. You have to be able to discern what the world is doing. You have to be able to discern what that culture is doing and recognize what is biblical or not. Second reason you have to be culturally literate is so that you can be sure that your own thoughts, your own words, your own values, that is to say your own culture is in accord with Scripture. You have to be able to evaluate yourself and make sure that you're in line with biblical values. And lastly, you have to be culturally literate because you have to recognize that we are living right now in the midst of the drama of redemption. God is at work. The whole of the world is a stage, to paraphrase uh, uh, Shakespeare. And on this stage, the story of redemption is working itself out. God is at work doing something in the midst of this. He's not absent. You have to be able to discern that. So those are the three reasons why you need to be culturally literate, because if you're culturally illiterate, it's going to be harmful ultimately to your spiritual health. You have to become, you can become proficient at reading what Jesus calls the signs of our times. You have to be able to discern the spirit of the age, discern your own heart and your own values, and discern what God is doing. And the reason you do this, because in the end, if you don't learn how to do this, you will miss the ultimate sign. And what is that ultimate sign? Jesus tells us about it in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Thankfully, we had Robert Masadi here a few weeks ago. He preached on this. He talked about Jonah. He talked about the sign of Jonah in Christ. And what we see then is that Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate sign that you don't want to miss. You must be able to see who he is and what he has done. The sign of Jonah is, of course, Jonah is thrown into the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And then God orders the, the, uh, the fish uh, to, to expel him. And Jesus is saying that that's the sign that he's going to give. Are they smart enough to connect the dots is what he's saying. Can you not see that this is my death, my burial, and my resurrection? In his death, he will pay the penalty that we owe God for our disobedience, for our getting out of whack, this call to line up and to shape the culture according to our image. And in his death, he saves us. But, you know, it's so easy to sit there and say, well, he's going to die in our place. Lots of people are dying. How do you know that he actually did it? He dies on the cross. He's buried to show that he really is dead. Right? He didn't fall through a trap door and go wait somewhere else. He's dead. He's buried. But then he rises from the grave. And the scripture again and again talks about the, uh, the resurrection as a vindication. Jesus is not raised from the dead. He rises from the dead in his own power. He has indeed defeated sin and death and hell and the devil. And his resurrection proves that beyond the shadow of a doubt. This is the sign that's been put before the whole of the world. And Jesus is saying, you don't want to miss this sign. Because this is a sign that shows that there's a new reality in town, and that is the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes, he starts by saying, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has arrived with the arrival of Jesus. When Jesus hit the world stage, the kingdom arrived with it. And that kingdom is wholly different from the reality of this fallen world. That kingdom brings a different set of values and beliefs and likes and dislikes and ethics. And Jesus, as the ultimate sign himself, is pointing us to this new way of living. 
He's pointing us to a new worldview and a new world that's all wrapped up in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the prophet for that kingdom. He's the final word from God that interprets this reality. In fact, Jesus is not just giving us the final word. He is the final word. He is the living word, the ultimate revelation from God. And that means that the kingdom of God is reality. Everything else that we create that doesn't line up with the kingdom of God is myth. I'm using the word myth the way the Bible uses it, not the way general um, culture uses it to refer to uh, imaginary stories about gods and beings and you know Heracles and all that stuff. But anything that does not line up with true reality, and yes, in the postmodern world we have to say there is a reality. Isn't that silly that we have to say that? But can we say that for the record? There is truth and there is a reality and it is defined by Jesus. Jesus defines reality because he is the arbiter of the kingdom. He brings in the kingdom. And so, not the projected worlds, not the created worlds of our culture, but the kingdom of God is what we are to live in, what is to shape us, and that we are then taught, uh, called as a church to expand and to take out to the world. When we talk about doing evangelism, when we talk about living out our Christian lives, what we're really doing is saying, we're living in the real world. And this is how life in the real world should be and must be. And that's what we're being called to do. In order to do that, let's look at the last thing that we're going to look at, which is method. How do we read the culture and how do we then turn around and take the real reality, the real world of the kingdom of God and bring it to the world around us? In order to do that, I think there's something very important that we have to do and it requires us to be able to read the culture. We have to recognize that Christianity has a cultural dimension. You can only do that if you're able to read the culture. But Christianity has a cultural dimension. In other words, it is impossible to construct a culture-free Christianity. It is impossible to divorce Christianity completely from culture because culture is everything that we do. And remember, the Christian faith is incarnational. We live it out. Even God, when he became a human, he did not become a generic human being, but he became a culturally located person. Christ was part of a particular nation. Nation. He lived in a particular time. He belonged to a particular society and a particular culture. And so do we. You can never completely come up with a generic human being or a generic Christianity. But here's the point. Despite the fact that God was a culturally located person in Christ, that Christ is accessible to all cultures. And that Christ can reach all people with the gospel. So just because you have a cultural dimension to your Christian faith does not mean that you can only reach people in your culture. But we must be just like Christ and be able to reach all different cultures and all different peoples in all different times. The danger is that if we don't recognize the cultural dimensions of our Christianity, we couldn't fall into the trap that what we're pushing to those other cultures is our culture as opposed to the Christian principles. Do you see the danger there? So we have to be able to read the culture to recognize those aspects of the cultural dimension that we're bringing as opposed to the actual biblical things. I remember 
When I was first being discipled in 1992 by Nabil Jabor, he is an, a Reformed Arab pastor who had just been in the U.S. just one year at that point. Had only been in the West one year at that point. We were in Colorado Springs, and he asked, how would our church, which we had there in Colorado Springs, how would that church, very similar to ours in makeup and demographics and so on, ethnicity, and he said, how would that church do if it was plucked from Colorado Springs and dropped into the middle of the cultural smorgasbord, which was Miami, where I had lived for so many years? Would the church be able to adapt? Would it be able to uh, minister to the people there? Or was it so culturally wrapped up in living in an upper-middle-class in a white setting that it would not be able to adapt to a world of Jamaicans and Haitians and Cubans and Puerto Ricans and rednecks and crackers and all that stuff that got mixed up there in Miami. See, what you have to be able to do is you have to be able to see what is non-negotiable in Scripture. See what is the cultural dimension of what you bring and be able to separate those. But you still do it through culture. I mean, what am I doing right now? I'm preaching the Word of God. Is that a non-negotiable? Yes, it is. Scripture talks about worship. Scripture talks about preaching. But in what language am I preaching? Not in Greek, not in Hebrew, not even in God's language of Spanish. I'm preaching in English because I'm in culturally located place. But hopefully we're communicating a timeless message, and we're not saying you have to be able to read English to be a follower of Jesus. So we have to be able to do that. And people of God, for us to do that, requires hard work. Because if we're not aware of how the culture affects us, we're going to, make, we're going to get into some trouble. I'll give you one example, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, there's a book by George Hunsberger called The Church Between Gospel and Culture. And he gives an example of the pragmatism which is so affecting, uh, infecting the church today. We talked about it a couple of years ago when we did our First Timothy series. That pragmatism define certain cultural ways of thinking about what is success and what isn't. So he talks about that pragmatism affecting the way that some churches even conceive their very mission. And I quote, he says, if our church grows, the rightness of our faith is somehow verified. In other words, we've made the standard of whether a church is being biblical or not, whether a church is successful as a church on whether it's growing numerically. And I'd like to be able to say, well, we in the Reformed churches in the OPC don't fall into that. But what do we do when we go to Presbytery? Hey, brother, how are you guys doing? How's your church? Well, we lost a family last week. Well, we gained four families. <laughs> the first thing we do is we talk about in numbers. Nowhere in Scripture do you see this as being a criteria for success. But if we can't discern that that is part of the managerial aspect of our Western 20th century, now into 21st century culture, if we don't recognize that, we're going to end up making that a criteria for measuring our success rather than what the Bible says. So we have to be aware of what our culture is, the spirit of the ages, recognize that we live in the midst of it, we can never divorce ourselves completely from it, but then be sure that when we present our Christianity to ourselves and to our children and to the world around us, that we don't press upon them those cultural norms. Does that make sense? And to do that, it's going to require hard work. It means you have to learn your Bibles. It means you have to learn your theology. But we can do it, and God calls us to do it. And only then can we fulfill the mission of the church. And I wrap up by quoting from 2 Peter 1.16, where Peter's addressing this very thing. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Our culture, as much as their culture, has all these cleverly devised myths. 
that men can be women, for example, and all sorts of other things. And they're trying to create a new reality. And we have to say, we're not coming to you with all that. We're coming to you and saying, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter says. And we have no longer the eyewitness account, but we have their eyewitness account. And this is what we come with. And we let the power of that be what shapes people. So we're called then to reject what is false in our culture. We have to do that, no matter the cost. Reject what is false in our culture. Proclaim the truth of God's reality, because in the end, that's the mission of the church. Remember, what does culture do? Culture communicates, orients, communicates, uh, I'm sorry, reproduces, and cultivates. Well, you know what? That's what the church is called to do. The church is to communicate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the values of the kingdom of God. We're to communicate it. We are to orient ourselves to it. We are to reproduce it through the preaching of the word and common everyday discipleship and evangelism. And we are to cultivate a new spirit and a new way of living. That's what we are called to do as a church. And that's why I had Romans 12, 2 laid out for you, because it says, do not be conformed to this world. And with this, we conclude, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying, do not be shaped by the world's culture. Do not be conformed to this world. All those readings that Brandon read earlier from the Old Testament, did you notice they were all a call? Do not be conformed to this world. Do not accommodate to the things of the culture. Instead, you are to be transformed by the removal of your mind? No, the renewal of your mind. We live in an anti-intellectual age in which too many evangelicals want to remove the mind and just go into hoppity-hoppity church. No, we are called to think and to engage, and as we think, it affects our heart. It can't stay up here, but it affects our heart, and therefore affects the way that we live. It's the Holy Spirit that then has to shape us so that we can do what? You can test. You have to be able to test and says, what is the will of God? What is God doing in this world? This is what we're being called to do. So people of God, we're all dwelling right now, right at this very instant, you are dwelling in a cultural world. Which world is it in which you dwell? In what world have you pitched your tent? What set of values and beliefs and ethics do you hold to and do you follow? Are they those that are projected by the media and by the culture around us, or is it the one that lines up with the kingdom of God? And if you are in that kingdom, are you then going out into this world, communicating, being oriented, reproducing, and letting it cultivate your own heart? May God indeed make us followers of the truth. He who is the truth, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, so that we might live as well. Let's pray.